At Eastern Bank, we believe that growing business should also grow the community. That's why we work to give all business owners what they need to take their dreams to the next level. Our dedication to small businesses and communities has inspired us to create the Equity Alliance for Business program and become the number one SBA lender in Massachusetts for 15 years running. We're proud to be here for all businesses, big and small. See the good we can do for you by visiting easternbank.com slash business. Member FDIC. Welcome to Say More from Boston Globe Opinion. I'm Shirley Leung. Historian Heather Cox Richardson has always taken the long view. The Boston College professor has a deep knowledge of historical events and a keen interest in today's news. But her superpower is this amazing ability to weave the past and present together. More than a million people subscribe to Heather's newsletter, Letters from an American, which gives historical context to the fire hose of news coming at us every minute of the day. Heather started writing these letters in 2019 on her Facebook page to make sense of the complex politics surrounding President Trump's impeachment trials. Now she uses Substack and she writes nearly every day. Heather's new book is called Democracy Awakening. Heather, welcome to Say More. It's great to speak with you. It's such a pleasure to be here. So as a professor, you have been writing for many years, books and academic papers. So what motivated you to start writing these letters, simple history-informed summaries of the news? It's actually a really easy question that ties right into what I do as a professor. People on my Facebook page, which at the time had about 22,000 followers, didn't understand what was happening when Trump was first in trouble with that phone call to Volodymyr Zelensky in September of 2019, the phone call having happened in July, but it came to light in September. And because I do political history and because I know where all the bodies are buried, if you will, I could explain what the different levels were as the case proceeded. So I was just answering people's questions. And really quickly, that snowballed into something way bigger than I ever imagined it being. And how quickly did that happen? I believe it was within three weeks. I was talking to my administration at Boston College and saying, you know, just so you know, something big is happening over here. And then within days, weeks, Substack, which was just starting out, called me and said, would you be interested in working with us? And what was funny about it was that my followers had been clamoring for a newsletter. And I said to one of my graduate students, what on earth is a newsletter? (laughs) Because I hadn't heard of something like that since the 1970s when the PTA used to send them out. So they had looked into who could carry the numbers that I was already communicating with, and nobody could at the time. And Substack was the only group that could actually handle the volume that I needed to have handled. So you have more than a million subscribers now on your newsletter. Why do you think you resonate with people? I think part of it is that You know, I don't know a lot myself about a lot of fields, so I'm never uncomfortable asking questions that other people might think are stupid questions. So in the letters, I always explain who every single person is, including the president of the United States. So I work constantly to make sure you don't have to know anything to start with one of the letters. So there's that, and then there's also the fact I'm really kind of an outsider, and I'm not invested in 
the day's news for a job and I'm not invested in it in a day-to-day basis, but I'm much more interested in the larger human patterns. And that's just kind of easier to get your, your head around, I think, than the constant, you know, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, much more. I try and look at it as if it were 150 years in the future. And I'm trying to look it back at a certain day and say, what are the important pieces that somebody in 150 years should know about today to understand America? In your new book, you provide historical context on how democracies can become autocracies. And the U.S. seems to be on a path to becoming more autocratic. So are we closer to being an autocracy than we've ever been before? The answer to that, I think, is unequivocally yes. But It's important to remember that at certain times in the United States, we have had authoritarian governments, and that really is the American South from about 1874, 1875 through to 1965. And when people say, oh, it can't happen here, my answer is always, it has. You know, this is exactly what happened in the the solid democratic states in the South during Reconstruction and then well into the 20th century, in which one party took over the apparatus of government and proceeded to create a governmental system that discriminated not only against Black Americans and people of color, but also against any white Americans who weren't part of that governing circle. So we have been here before. We could be here again. What makes a difference now on the national stage is this is the first time in our history that a major political party has abandoned the idea of democracy. That being said, though, one of the things that is so exciting about this period for a historian is that for all that there is this terror looming in the background, there is also this extraordinary flowering of concern about civic democracy, of concern about each other, of an outpouring of artistry and writing. And, you know, it's an incredibly fertile time. And when people say to me, you know, aren't you terrified? My answer is always, I was way more frightened in the beginning of the 2010s, 2013, 14, 15, when this was rising, and even before that, when this right wing was rising and nobody seemed to notice and nobody seemed to care. And for people like me, you know, our hair was on fire starting at least back to the George W. Bush administration. Now, finally, people have woken up and are pushing back. And this is a place we have also been in our history a number of times before. And in those times, the decent people who simply want to protect American democracy, have always won. You had mentioned earlier that you and your fellow historians, you were actually starting to to get concerned about the future of the American democracy back in the, you know, 2014, 2015s, right? I mean, did you predict Trump's rise? Did you see someone like him coming? In fact, people like me got very concerned with the rise of Ronald Reagan, not necessarily because of his policies, but because he was not operating in a reality-based community. So in fact, I've been, been shouting now for my entire career that we were in real trouble. That being said, I'm such an optimist that I don't know how many times I've said, no, 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 the Republican Party's gone down this road before. It's going to self-correct. It's self-corrected, you know, in in the 1890s. It's self-corrected in the 1940s. It's going to self-correct again. And finally, I think it was a couple years ago, I did an epilogue to my Republican book, and I'm like, nope, I'm wrong. They're not going to self-correct. So Trump, I, I mean, are you surprised 
I mean, right now about his grip on voters. I mean, he's the first president with a mugshot, and he still might be the nominee for the Republican Party. Not at all. Anybody who studies authoritarianism, we we really could script this out. You know, there's this great thing after World War II when all these people start saying, oh, my God, where did Hitler come from? Where did Mussolini come from? And there's this wonderful writer who publishes a book in 1951. He's a longshoreman in San Francisco. His name is Eric Hoffer. And he says, who cares? You know, every generation has tons of Hitlers and Mussolinis and they never go anywhere. The real question is, why do people support them? Why in certain eras do people support them? And what he argued, I think, really convincingly, and you can see the influence of his ideas and other people's in my new book, is the idea that what happens is that you get a population that has been destabilized, either economically or religiously or socially, and they feel like they've lost out. You get a a leader who says, Oh, oh, I'm on your side. And the reason that you've been dispossessed is not because of these laws or any of the many reasons that that might have happened, but because of them. Now, who them is doesn't particularly matter, but it's important to have someone to hate in order to weld that somewhat apathetic, generally mass, a mass of people who are generally apathetic into a political movement. And then once you have that other and you start to demonize that other, you're putting those people in a psychological position of buying into treating fellow human beings terribly. Once you have started to go down that road, it's extraordinarily hard to get off it because you have to admit to yourself that you're the one who was bad, not them. And so you're psychologically committed. And paradoxically, the worse the person you are following behaves, the more tightly you are wedded to wow. him, not less. Wow. You don't sit and there that's and what's say, happening. oh, it's exactly what's happening. Wow. Because it becomes a core part of your identity. And in order to, to break away from that person, you have to be willing to say, my identity is the problem here, not those other people. And that's a kind of psychological position that very few people can climb out of. So Trump failed in his attempt to overturn you know, the 2020 election, and now he's running again. He's been indicted four times. So do you think he's going to get reelected? Historians, I always like to say, are prophets of the past, not the future. So who knows? But I do not believe that Donald Trump will be reelected president for the simple reason that I believe Americans are fundamentally decent and that if, in fact, there was a free and fair vote, he would probably not be able to be dog catcher. But therein lies what worries me about 2024, and that is the degree to which state legislatures and state executive offices that were really deliberately packed by the Trump people during the Trump administration have so sewn up the mechanics of our democracy that they might be able to steal it. And if that happens... I'm 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 worried. I'm worried. One of the reasons I want to work so hard to make sure that people are able to vote freely and fairly in 2024 is that one of the things I do a lot is I try and play out what the future looks like. And I don't see the American people saying, oh, yeah, OK, we're going to become an autocracy. We're good with that. And if, in fact, that we start down that road, 
after 2024, I don't like the look of what I imagine will happen. It, it reminds me of a, a line in your book that just jumped out, which is about how democracies die more often through the ballot box than at, I think, than at gunpoint, right? And I was like, oh, this is why <laughs> we we should be much more up in arms about protecting the ballot boxes and, and voters and, and, and who gets to vote. Can, can I just say yeah. something about that? This is one of the places where history really matters because we have seen this before. This is precisely what happened in the American South after the Civil War. You know, it's not certainly there was 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 violence against black mm -hmm. Americans and against their white allies right. as well. But what really made it palatable to remand black Americans into second class citizenship for generations was this slow chipping away that said, oh, we don't care that they're black. Mm -hmm. We're just really worried they're going to redistribute wealth. Mm -hmm. And it happened in such a way that a lot of people who weren't paying close enough attention thought it was fine until it really, really, really wasn't fine. So this is one of the reasons that any historian of America is looking at this moment and saying, don't close your eyes because we know what's going to happen. We've seen it before. And that's one of the reasons that people like me speak up. More of my conversation with Heather Cox Richardson after this short break. At Eastern Bank, we believe in good business. That's why we provide clients with a suite of products and services made to take their businesses to the next level. From express business loans to seamless cash management solutions, we make it easy to grow when the time is right. As a trusted full-service bank and the number one SBA lender in Massachusetts for 15 years running, we understand what you need to keep your business thriving. See the good we can do for you by visiting easternbank.com business. Member FDIC. In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlick Case. Available now. So last year, you had a chance to sit down with Joe Biden. And in this interview, uh, you called Biden a transformational president. But many Democrats don't even think he should be running for a second term. So why, why do you call him transformational? And were you just being nice to a podcast guest? <laughs> no, I was not actually a Biden supporter. I thought at best he was going to be a placeholder president, and I thought we needed something different than that. And I fully admit I was dead wrong, because what he has done domestically is to reverse the policies of trickle-down economics or supply-side economics that Ronald Reagan put into effect in 1981, and that have really dominated American politics for the past 40 years. Rather than helping people at the bottom, which we had done from 1933 to 1981, what you really 
wanted to do was concentrate money at the top because people who had money would more accurately read the markets and they would invest their money more accurately and more efficiently than the government possibly could. Well, in fact, that's never worked. It's never produced great economic growth at all. And it certainly pales in comparison to the economic growth that we've seen under Biden, who took us back to that vision of the period from 1933 to 1981 that was shared by presidents of both parties, by the way, and by by members of both parties to say, listen, what we really got to do is put money back in the hands of ordinary people. And it's going to make sure that there is just more money in the economy and it's going to spur economic growth. And of course it has. So on the domestic front, he has changed. When I say transformational, you'll note that that I didn't say good or bad, although in my opinion, that's good. It is an entirely new or slash old way to look at the American economy. And it is one that so far is paying off in spades. So there's that. But then on the other side, he is the best president on foreign policy we have had since at least George H.W. Bush, but I would put it all the way back to Eisenhower in the 1950s. I think that one of the things that he and Secretary of State Antony Blinken have taken on is what has always been since World War II, even before that, since the Spanish-American War of 1898, a crucial problem in the concept of global democracy. And that is if the United States is trying to make itself a beacon of democracy for the globe, how can it spread that without colonialism? And it strikes me that they are attempting to create a new kind of global democracy based in the idea of regionalism. But the United States will no longer march in with armies and say, do it our way. So during your interview with Biden, you asked him this question, which I now want to pose to you. Why should we have faith that American democracy is going to survive? Did I ask him that? (laughs) You did. You did. (laughs) That's a hell of a thing to ask the president, isn't it? (laughs) I must have been tired by then. It wasn't supposed to go on that long. (laughs) I think we should have faith that American democracy is going to survive. And I wouldn't even say survive. I would say expand. No, I would say thrive and expand. And the reason for that is, again, based in history. If you look at our history, one of the key things about the United States is that it is based in the concept of human self-determination. We have never achieved that. It has always been a work in progress, but because we are a nation that is constantly growing and constantly changing, including with influxes of people from other countries, we have always kept that ideal front and center. I have faith in the American people. You know, at the end of the day, we're decent people and we care about each other and we care about having control over our own futures. And through your writing and through these letters, I mean, you've built an incredible community. I mean, there's hundreds, maybe sometimes thousands of comments, right, on your letter. So what have you learned from your community? You know, I I describe myself as the coffee pot that everybody has gathered around in the break room. We're a community who care about each other. We care about community, about making the world better for other people. I think what it really has done for me is reaffirmed the idea that what really makes America is community, not the individualism we have been sold since the 1980s, and that we all have really astonishing things to contribute. All right, last question for you. So you started writing letters to establish a daily record of 
what people are paying attention to. So a hundred years from now, what do you think historians will say about this period in American history? Well, so isn't that the question, right? And that's that was sort of the whole, well, that was actually what made writing this book so incredibly difficult was that either they will say, oh my God, you know, this is where it all went bad. And this is the modern version of the fall of Rome. Or they will say, look, this is the time when people took back their country and made it the incredible place it is now. And I think anybody looking back at this moment will recognize that it is a transformative moment for the country, the United States of America, but also for the globe, not only because of the rise of autocracy, but of course, because we have this giant sword hanging over us in the form of climate change. But whether they say, this is where it all went wrong, or this is where it all went right, at the end of the day is up to us. Well, Heather, thank you for being our coffee pot. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, this has been a great conversation, and um, I hope everyone reads Democracy Awakening. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Say More is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Anna Kussmer, with help from Scott Hellman, Jesse Remedios, Alexis Sargent, and Abby Kanina. Our editor is Jim Dow. Our engineer is Ariana Martinez. Maggie Taylor is our marketing coordinator. Our music is from APM Music. If you like the show, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Find us online at globe.com slash opinion. I'm Shirley Leung. Thanks for listening. <laughs>